Welcome back to What's on Your Mind. I'm Dr. Gene Bresson. And I'm Dr. Steve Schlossman. And we're child psychiatrists at the Clay Center for Young Healthy Minds at the Massachusetts General Hospital. Here's what we'll talk about today. Today we're going to be talking about the impact of divorce on kids, a really important area. And, you know, uh, some people call it an epidemic because, well, it depends on what statistics you look at, but about 40 to 50 percent of uh, marriages end up in divorce. And the kids naturally feel the fallout of this. So today we wanted to explore this. And we've invited Heidi Webb, who is a lawyer. And she has a master's degree from Harvard in counseling and consulting psychology. Uh, Her firm, uh, Concilium Divorce Consultations, is very special in some ways because she not only takes care of her clients with legal advice, but she provides life strategies, emotional and financial advice. She gives them logistic support, and it's kind of a holistic approach to divorce, and I think it's important. Well, Heidi, let me ask you a controversial question to begin. You lawyers. <laughs> yes. That, that doesn't sound provocative No, it's at not all. provocative. No, no. no but, no, but, but it's, it's what, what, what do we shrinks say to <laughs> right, them that's lawyers? Right. Yeah. No, but it, what's fascinating to me is that attorneys, judges, uh, those involved in juvenile courts, particularly those involved with guardianship and custody, you know, they go to law school, but they're not taught about child development or child psychiatry. So they're making life and death decisions about kids and their families. What kind of training do they have and where do they get it? Well, can I say one quick interruption just to be fair here? You and I fill out papers for divorce courts all the time and we're not trained as attorneys either. That's right. So – so it's, You're right. it is interesting to me. I mean, like we we are celebrating Heidi's firm here as something special, but it feels like that firm ought to be the norm. Like there's this is a natural marriage is a bad pun, but this is a natural marriage, right. and yet it doesn't happen that often. So now I just wanted to no, that's that. well, that's, that's very valuable. Yeah. I think it's a um, a big question in terms of our educational system and how siloed it is, and how often or how normal, it seems, that people go to a professional school after maybe a broad liberal arts education, maybe even not having had that necessarily if they were specialized before then, but moving quickly into a very specialized um, area without having had the opportunity to really have sort of cross-pollination with other disciplines. And I think it's a problem. And I think some people more naturally acquire that through their professional experience. Some people come to it with more of a background in a particular area. You know, oftentimes patent lawyers will have been engineers before. Family practitioners sometimes will have been psychology undergraduates or have have done what I did, which was a degree um, in psychology before, in education before going to law school. But it's not true for everybody. People sometimes just find it interesting and move into that aspect of law and don't have um, the background that you'd think they would have. And um, I think it's like with many fields, there's a broad spectrum of capability and uh, interest and aptitude. It makes, I mean, it makes sense. It's, it's so interesting. We were talking about this before we started this broadcast. Every patient that Gene and I are lucky enough to meet with, whose patients are unlucky enough to have their parents be splitting up, and that's often the way it feels, that this is not a great mm-hmm. thing for the kids. They can't seem to get away from the battle. And I suppose there's a selection bias, right? Because they're coming to see us. Sure. And so so we may see a different population. But in your experience, what's the reason for that? Why can the parents, why is it so hard for the parents to not see that these children, these beautiful children that they've created together or adopted together, whatever, why can't they pay more attention to them? 
I think there's a natural sort of tendency toward self-preservation when people are going through a crisis. And I think people become very self-absorbed. And um, it's not by intention that people want to be selfish, but I just think they're protective of themselves and their own futures and their own finances and their own housing. And it's not that they mean not to include their kids or remember their kids, but I think it's hard for a lot of people at all those moments to attend to their kids in ways that you'd hope they would. And, and do you say that directly to the parents? Like, I do. Because it occurs to me that that would be something really helpful to hear as parents who are, who yeah. are kind of butting heads. That, yeah. You know, I, I really, you know, sometimes I work with couples and I have conversations with both of them together about those issues. And sometimes even with an individual, I'll have that conversation because I'll know that it's going to impact the interactions they're going to have with each other. And at least if one person's coming at it with that perspective, you hope that it'll be a little bit contagious um, and that that attitude will prevail between both people eventually. Well, let me let me move this in a little bit of a different direction. You know, we've been talking about divorce, but it used to be that uh, couples would stay together for the kids. Mm-hmm. And that was – the model was you keep the family intact and you stay together just for the kids, and that has to be the gold standard. What do, you, what do you think about that? You know, I think that high conflict situations are bad for kids. And whether or not that's a high conflict marriage or a high conflict divorce, I think it's, it's going to have – it'll be the kids who suffer because of that. And when people stay in a marriage for the sake of a marriage and they're really unhappy, I think that there are a lot of possible outcomes, I suppose. And when it's a high-conflict situation, I think they're probably pretty negative. There's some research that suggests that if there's just sort of a general unhappiness in the household, the kids see it as background noise for lack of another you know, expression, I guess, of that. And they go on with their lives and they just sort of say, oh, well, you know, my parents aren't that happy, but my life's good. Whereas kids whose parents get divorced have a real shock to the system. And it is a huge adjustment. And then their concerns often move to either making their parents happy or making their lives, their lives have been made more difficult. So they have to think about where they're going to be for the weekend, where they've left their things. And their ideas of themselves shift and their uh, emphasis moves away from them and more on to sort of logistics and to their parents. You know, the, this is not on our, our little talking points thing, but I got to ask you, do, do you ever watch the Louis show, the Louis C.K. show? <laughs> I haven't. The, the reason I bring it up is he, he tells his – well, he's from the Boston area. He's a very funny comedian. And he tells his personal story in these shows even though they're – I've heard snippets on the radio, yeah. And he recently, a few years ago, got divorced and – there are many episodes of him when his daughters come over. It's his weekend with the daughters, and he tries to make – he tries so hard to make them the, you know, the meal that they love, and they say something like, mom's is better. <laughs> and he is just crestfallen. Right, like right. He, the kids get up and walk away, and you see the look on his face, and he makes it into funny, and a lot of comedy is sad in that way. How do we, how do we help parents to sort of have that loving relationship with both kids, which is what Louis talking about on that show – Despite the fact that this divorce has happened. Yeah, with both parents. Yeah. yeah. I think it's really um, hard for parents to sort of take the high road all the time. And I think when they can keep their kids front and center, and I think that's some of the conversations that we have sort of going into it, that despite how you feel about each other – and I see parents sometimes sit in my office and roll their eyes at each other, but I, but say to me privately – you know, on the soccer field, I can keep it together. You know, I can behave. I just can't stand to be alone with him in the room or with you and him in the room or vice versa. But 
a lot of times, you know, the conversations we have or people tell me the conversations we have ring through their heads uh, at a later time when they need them and they can sort of recall them and, and find them useful in terms of acting in their kids' best interests. You know, and I suppose by the same vein then, because that makes sense, you don't want to make every visit the extra special, unbelievably incredible, well, go to the amusement park and go sure. out to dinner visit. That's not a standard anybody could possibly live up to. It, right. That's not real. No, I mean, I think that goes up back almost, you know, years and years ago when dads typically had, you know, Sunday ice cream cone and horseback riding or whatever. And that was really unbalanced. And there's been a huge movement toward more sort of equality in terms of time spent with parents. And that brings me to sort of another thought, I guess, which oftentimes people come into my office saying, you know, I want 50-50 custody. And I'll always say, what does that mean? You know, who is that about you? Relative to your kids, what do you tell me about your kids? Tell me about their lives. Tell me what they do. I'm not really interested in how we divide the week for you. And it's actually we're talking about ten years. We're not talking about a week. So if that's you know whatever time period is, I don't want to break it down and get arguing about you know she had three more days than me this month. You know we're talking about a long period of time and a whole lifetime. And what I really want to do is help people craft something that feels authentic to their kids and to themselves and really speaks to everyone's ability in the family to give their best and get their best out of the restructuring they do once they're post-divorce. And, you know, at least the research that I've read in divorce shows that actually what counts a lot to kids, if not more to kids, is involvement in the day-to-day details of, of, of life, you know, uh, whether it's, you know, helping with homework or, or getting to soccer shoes practice, or getting to soccer yeah. practice, driving the car, you know, it's not that special, you know, outing to a, you know, an amusement park or miniature golf. It's, it's the nitty gritty down to earth, even discipline. I mean, those are the things that really Maybe count. especially discipline yeah, because especially. you got to know, you know, you don't want to feel too powerful. Right. Well, now, one other thing that, that I, I wanted to raise was, you know, you, you and I, Heidi wrote this this blog about giving tips to parents about, and we use the act, the acronym ACT CIVIL, uh, about behavior during the process of divorce, you know, not using your kids as confidants, not making accusations, developing trust, you know, and, and I encourage the listeners to read those things. But, you know, as well, I well, said... Just to be clear, the acronym is ACT CIVIL, accusations, confident, trust, civil, informed, validated, interest, and love. You can't say an acronym without spelling it out. Right. So. That's it. You got. You must have read the blog. I did. Okay. It's a good blog. It's a good piece. <laughs> but you know. But you know. I'm Steve Slavin. I approve of that message. <laughs> but as 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 I say to many of my my patients that come in and and say, you know, uh, we we want to get a divorce, and we talk about it, and we do some couples therapy, and it turns out they're going to get this divorce. One of the things I say to them is, you know, remember, you're breaking up, but you're going to be stuck together for life, in part, well, because you've got kids, so. What are your thoughts about the post-divorce era, which is really a lifetime, you know, for the kids and and for and for the parents? Absolutely, you know, I think that a lot of thought generally is given to, or sometimes not enough thought, but thought is generally given in terms of where I am now and how I get through the divorce, but not what's it look like afterward. And I always start, you know, I sort of turned the whole process on its head when I started the practice I have now. And I started asking really different questions like, where do you want to be in 10 years, in five years, in three years? How are you going to get there? And the divorce is going to be part of you and part of what you do in the next year or so. But it's not who you are and it's not, you know, your entire journey. 
So let's sort of frame things a little bit more in context instead of just seeing it as um, the one essential thing that you need to accomplish. And part of what arose out of that was thinking in terms of who are we as parents after the divorce and can we craft a document that speaks to that so that it's sort of the anti-divorce agreement. It's And I've named it the after-marriage covenant. And that speaks to – and I use the word covenant to, to not say contract and to not make it sound tied up so much in something that's enforceable in a courtroom – but rather something that speaks to what we believe and what we hold dear and what we still sort of consider um, joint values. So, you know, what are our common hopes and aspirations and dreams for our kids that we still can agree on? And if there are disagreements, and certainly there'll be some, what do we know right now we disagree on? And can we articulate how we're going to address those things so that we have a means of communicating that will be effective to address what we know are going to most likely be issues? And that includes everything from mutual friends to in-laws to all sorts of psychodynamics in your own relationship with each other and things that the activities the kids are involved in. Um, it's a pretty broad sweeping yeah, document. It's just so interesting because that's what married couples do, right? I mean, like like my wife and I have disagreements over what we think would be best for our kids. And we got to sit down at the dinner table late at night after everyone's to sleep and, and try and figure it out. And it sometimes is a tiny bit adversarial, which is just the nature of being married. So what you're quite reminding them is that it's not like the adversarialness is necessarily bad, but it's also not going to end, and it need not even be adversarial. You just got to talk. Yeah, the other thing that I have worked into this um, is a process about how we process, which sounds maybe a little bit convoluted, but you know, some people really don't want to get text messages, and some people really find that's the best way for them to communicate. And I think even that can be an irritation. You know, somebody calls, and I don't want to hear from somebody on the phone. You know, so how? What are the What's our, our sort of acceptable ways of communicating with each other um, and sort of laying that out too? So what we're really talking about or what you're talking about is that whether you're married or whether divorced or whatever the family situation is, it all involves really kind of being thoughtful, communicating with each other, communicating with relevant family members and with the kids and understanding who everybody is in this in this ongoing drama that we're living in. Absolutely. You know, I always say to people, that document, that after marriage covenant, I think if it's not addressed at the time of the divorce, it's definitely not going to be looked back at in five years. I mean, by then, people have taken on different personas and moved on with their lives, and they're not going to go back and discuss those issues. And that's why I think often those things go back to court. And then you're throwing it all to a judge. So as we wrap this up, Here's the question I hear most often. We see these parents. We see the kids. The parents say, please tell me that I'm not going to ruin my kid by, by doing this. I, I have to do this. I don't want to do this. I certainly didn't get married to get divorced, but it's going to happen. I'm not. Please tell me I'm not going to do any damage. Can we, we can tell them that. Right? I mean, I feel well, like we can tell that, them that. They ask us that. They ask me that all the time. Me all the but time. I'm wondering from a legal – I mean, you have this unique perspective as mm-hmm. both a, you know, an attorney and also a, a, a therapist. We can tell them that from both perspectives, it sounds like. Um, I would just want to say I'm not a therapist, but I have a degree in education <laughs> and psychology. So, um, Can we tell them that life will be – wonderful after that they're divorced? Or can we tell them that you'll be authentic and you'll discuss it and you'll be real with them and talk to them about the issues? I think that can all happen. You know, I think somebody was saying to me yesterday, a couple who I've worked with for on and off for about a year, 
they told their kids right after Christmas that they were going to get divorced. And it was a huge controversy before they told them between the two of them. One thought they should tell them before Christmas and one thought they should tell them after Christmas. So, of course, after it's done, they still disagree that they told them the wrong – one thinks they told them the wrong way and one thinks they told them the right way. What the conversation centered around was next Christmas. Is there going to be a sense – in the kids' minds that, oh, my God, like what's going to happen this Christmas? Something awful happened last Christmas. Is this going to happen again? Is that going to be circling around in their minds? And is that off limits? Is the conversation off limits or is that an open conversation we can have? And I think it has to be an open conversation. And I think the parents have to get comfortable with the idea that that's something your kids might be thinking about and it's okay to tell them that you love them and that that was a one-time experience that they all went through and they've grown, and how much different things are, and hopefully better things are now, because things have improved in many ways for that family. Well, I want to thank you for being here. We have to wrap up. There's obviously a lot more that we can talk about and think about in terms of marriage, divorce, life, kids, and, you know, how we craft our own, you know, futures, um, which is obviously what we, we try to do as best we can. So, Anyway, thanks a lot for listening. If you have any comments or questions, please write uh, and listen to the podcast, read the blog. I'm Gene Bereson. And I'm Steve Schlossman. And one final thing, you said you're not a therapist, but you sure sound like you'd be a good one. <laughs> I just want, just want to put that out there. But thanks well, so much. Thank you for the comment. Thank you for the time, both of you. It's thanks been a lot so of fun. Thank you. <laughs>